0: Um, yeah, thanks for being here and uh, hope you um, found Saturday uh, helpful in terms of at least just giving some framework of 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 where we're at and where're we're, where we're heading We're very committed to that process and uh, uh, hopefully to uh, growing the house on two different fronts so um tonight uh, an interesting little um parable we we moved the grand piano from what was my office in number 12 across the road into the back hall. So the grand piano uh, has done a circuit from when we first had it from here and over there and it's back again. And um, uh, Amy very kindly was ready to arrange to get it tuned. But I said, don't touch it for at least a month. Um, Because what happens when you move a piano... um, First of all, there's the there's the um, physical effect on the piano from moving it, uh, and then wherever you place it, has a different level of humidity, a different temperature, uh, different rates of airflow, and uh, believe it or not, even though the piano is uh, is um, uh, well over 30 years old, um, it, it still it still responds to different environments in different ways, and. Um, Uh, Danny and I had a little tinkle on it the day we moved it, which I think was last Friday, Thursday or Friday. Um, And then I was on it yesterday um, after the funeral, uh, on Monday after the funeral. And uh, it had deteriorated, deteriorated drastically from last week when it was moved to Monday this week. And will continue to do so because... The change of environment, the movement, the different situation means that it becomes detuned and it has to be retuned in the environment that it now is. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so it will be in tune, and it's the same piano, but it has to be tuned according to the environment that it's in. Now, um, the, the, the journey of, of humanity's relationship with God and desire to understand God and therefore, everything that goes along with that, uh, of which the Bible is, is an important part, has always been through a process of uh, when there is movement, there is a need to retune according to the environment that you find yourself in. And if that's not done, actually, what we do is we uphold the detuned product because we say, well, it was, tuned. it was in tune when it was there, we moved it, so I don't know what's wrong, Instead of just saying, it's in a different place, same piano, same strings, uh, but why don't we tune it, get it into tune for where it sits now so that it can be enjoyed again, okay? Freshly enjoyed uh, and in tune. So um, a lot of that is, was a good parable for where we actually are. And um, uh, in, in this environment on Wednesdays, we've, we've gone back to a, a very much a teaching environment, lecture environment. Uh, because that's where our journey has brought us now, so we're tuning to this. We also felt that there were some issues that we don't want to wrestle with on a Saturday night, um, but we do want to wrestle with them. Uh, and we don't want to wrestle with them once every four to six weeks. We want to be in a process where we have a continued process of wrestling and learning. So I appreciate that we all have different capacities of, of uh, understanding and assimilation, that, that's fair, but there are two things you need to be aware of. One is, one is um, cognitive assimilation, which is a clever word, isn't it? That just means what you take on board consciously. I heard that, I understood it, and uh, I've grasped it. There's also subconscious assimilation, which means that that we actually take on board more than we realize when we don't understand it at the time, but we actually our minds take it on board and when a situation arises that that becomes relevant it pops up from wherever it had sat within our mind in our spirit in our heart and becomes relevant so those are the two processes of learning that are very important so i say that because i don't want you to feel if you don't cognitively naturally fully say i get that i've grasped it that's amazing don't worry because when we sit under it, something goes in our spirit and things pop up at a later date. So my prayer is that you'll understand lots. Um, my biggest prayer is that we'll just be open to hear God. Um, and that within it all, um, the Word will, will be made flesh in us. That we'll hear. Because again, uh, you know, um, uh, John didn't write in the beginning was the Bible. And the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. He said, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, And so our main focus is, can we, in the midst of everything, hear the Word? And if we do, that's what allows us to retune. That's our tuning fork. bong, we hear the Word. We hear the now Word. In the environment we're in, and it gives us what we need to tune to for now. Okay, so so we're not going to be apologetic about... um, Challenging things and questioning things and proposing some things that, that um Some may or may not agree with or may half agree with or quarter agree with or not agree with at all The point is this is the place of maturity the point is not you have to agree The point is you need to think and you need to think about this and you need to come to some conclusions and we will endeavor to say what we think our conclusions are to the experimental process. This is what we believe um, the evidence is showing. Um, But if we have a mature environment, it means that we don't measure it by the fact that we all agree about the same thing to the full degree all the time. Maturity says, actually, we can have some differing ideas, and the maturity is that we bring those together. That's a healthy environment. And uh, within that environment, then, we help one another come to truth. So uh, so, be blessed, and um, uh, we'll try and follow some good courses. Chris is on tonight because she had some good research and thoughts about the Bible, but I'm just going to pray, okay, just before we start. Father, you're already with us. You love us immensely. The desire of your heart has always been that we hear your word, um, because when we hear your word, that, that reveals the truth to us, and when we know the truth, the truth makes us free. So, we want to be people of the word, the living word, the word from heaven, coming through whatever source, whatever means tonight, and touching our hearts so that we will uh, forever be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there you go. Well,
1: I'm feeling incredibly nervous, but never mind. Um, and I've got the board because I thought it would be good if I could put things on so you could look at things, but I'm not so sure I can do it that at the same time as talk. <laughs> you know, it's like rubbing your head and patting your tummy, you know. So, I, I mean, if I want something right in, I'll I'll call, you know, we'll have the teacher, shall we, to, to, to write on a board. Um, OK, so <clears throat> let me first of all not assume that what I'm necessarily bringing you is new revelations. Some of you might know this already and it may be that I've just understood it because I don't want to assume that, uh, you know, basically uh, you out there haven't, you know, worked some of these things out for yourself. Um, But this has just been a a part of my journey and it was important for me. And when I think, you know, for myself, I think, oh, I didn't know that. I always think, well, what happens if somebody else didn't know that? And I, I want to share it so if you have understood any of this then I want to say why didn't you tell me because I could have done to be told um, and also so it frees you know it frees you I want you to be freed and um, the reason why um, you know I, I wanted to call it get into grips with the Bible what is this book and how has it become what is has it become because it's a little bit like when we we messed with hell and what that meant uh, there were certain people around, uh, not necessarily in this place, but around who immediately reacted with, you're not touching my hell. Even though you could give them reasons that that were very enlightening and biblical about interpretations, they were still very unhappy that their view on hell had been touched. And we can be the same with the Bible because um, as I was thinking today, we can uh, do, unfortunately, what we should never do Uh, which is to elevate uh, the written text above, like I said a few minutes ago, the word made flesh, which is Christ. So the Bible's great uh, in the sense of uh, what it is, but this is my problem. I don't believe it's been allowed to be what it really is. It's been made into something else. And because it's been made into something else, it then gets staunchly defended, and we make ourselves look stupid because we're actually defending it for what it isn't rather than what it is. Now, I hope you can sort of get your head around that because I don't want you to feel, you you know, after all that you've done, you're now touching my Bible and you won't even let that alone. Uh, The truth is, we, we have to be willing to pick a thing up and have a look at it and say, is what I've been led to believe Is this the truth of the matter? And what I would like to do in a a little while is sort of basically put um, a a, a then and now in the sense of what was and what is in the context of when, you know, because I ask questions like this. Well, before the Bible was the Bible, what were the pieces of information? What were there And, and, and how did people interpret those texts before it all got grabbed and put as we know it now? So that's what we're going to do in a little while. Now, the other thing I want to just say as well is that we're doing this objectively at the moment. Now, I'm not an English buff, but I do know the difference between objectively and subjectively. So when I say we're going to look at what the Bible is, it's in the context of objectively look at what it is. Not, I'm not asking the question, what does the Bible mean to me? Does that make sense? So all of us, if I ask that question, what does the Bible mean to you, we're going to come out with a, loads of answers to that. Oh, well, it means one thing here and it means another thing there. But when you look at it objectively, it's actually very clear what it is and you can't get away from it. So, you know, the Bible isn't, isn't an Enid Blyton book about little pigs or whatever. You can, you can actually say it isn't that, but you can say it is this. So that's what I really want to do for a little while tonight. Now, the other reason why I want to do it as well is because I know that as a, a young person, there was often people would say, Oh, well, you know, you, you believe in the Bible, you Christians, but there's loads of contradictions in it. Now, has anybody ever said that to you? Or, right, okay. And most of us go, Oh, there isn't. No, there isn't. No. And yet, really, we don't know because we haven't, most of us, been bothered uh, to read it properly to find out, and then we then sort of get cross at the person who's sort of had the audacity to say there's contradictions in it, and we think that our sacred text has somehow been abused or whatever, when actually, like I said a few minutes ago, if we are defending it for what it is, and there are contradictions in it, what's the problem because we're actually saying, yeah, that's fine. You know, I can, I can explain why that is happening. And instead of us looking like complete twits, just defending something because we think we have to, we actually can engage in a conversation that actually says, do you know, but I can tell you why that's going on there, and we'll get to it in a little bit, so I hope I don't waffle on and then don't get to where I want to go. Now, the other thing is what I want to uh, get over to you, is that you see a lot of the people who talk about Bible bashing, when people Bible bash, it's because they have an understanding about the Bible, which I think, again, I'm trying to deal with that tonight, is because they believe it's a rule book, and therefore, They look at it, they think, or they've been told what it represents, and then what they do is go around bashing it on people's heads, saying, oh, hang on a minute, you're doing this. The Bible says you shouldn't, you can't. And there we get the Bible bashing. So people then look at Christianity as, you've got this book, basically you love this book because it tells you that you're right and everybody else is wrong, and all you're going to do with it is criticise me and condemn me. Wouldn't you agree? Whereas actually, if we understand more about its composition and, and how, it, how it was and then how it became what it has become, we might just have a little bit more humility. Uh, now the other thing is as well, I, I, I think that integrity demands that we know what we're talking about, even if we might get it a bit wrong. Because integrity means that I've at least stopped to think about the thing rather than just saying, well, this is what I was told, this is what I've always believed, therefore, I don't have to look any further. Now, the reason why I said at the beginning that this might be just for me is because there's lots of things over the last 15 years that I have recognised. I was so blooming spoon-fed with stuff that now I think, ah, that was just awful, right? I think to myself, heck, is it just me, Well, I don't think it is. I think, you know, there are others who want to go the journey. So I was uh, having a bit of a laugh because I was thinking about all the songs that we used to sing in Sunday school about, you know, every every chapter in the book is mine. No, is it every... every promise is the book is about every chapter every verse every line and you think really and then you you know there's other things the bible that's the book for me and I would Joel always used to get this line wrong didn't you it's i stand alone on the word of god the bible and we used to sing oh you know these are absolutely fantastic uh, songs to sing but then you recognize that when we're talking about every every promise in the book is mine we're then very selective about which Things are mine, and then we don't look at some other things. And I know that I've uh, had to look at some scripture and say, Hang on a minute, what does that mean? And I can't just pretend it's not there. You've got to ask, What does it mean? So I hope this is a, a sort of a, a good starting point. Um, I am not going to take away your, your book. You can have it, it can be whatever you want, but I'm just going to offer some thoughts about it. So let's start just by talking, and I'd like to say, some, especially the young people, I hope this helps because I want you to be able to be proud about your understanding of your faith and where that faith comes from. And the questions that go along with that, which sometimes have to be clarified. Is, is: Am I being clear? I hope I am, because smile at me, everybody. Thank you. Okay, so if we start here, the and you can come out and write if you want. No, shall I try and do it myself? Okay, so. I think it's going to take too long. Yeah, Biblia. Yeah, I think you might have to. And if we keep what was... What was and what is, if you see what I mean. Okay, so, b- <laughs> Biblia. That is actually, you might need to start at the top, <laughs> rather than a bit further down. So, it's the Biblia, it's a Latin word. Now, as soon as you hear the word Latin, that should give you a clue about something. Latin, I mean, somebody's had hold of it. Because if you think about when all the Bible was coming together, it was in, it was in a Greek and c- coming from Hebrew. So L- Latin got involved somewhere along the line. Now, the, word, uh, the Latin word, Biblia, means um, books. That needs to be this side. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get it in a minute. We should have had a practice. I'm sorry. Because in, uh, sorry, it is wrong side. I've done it wrong. <laughs> oh, shoot me now, shoot me now. Right. The, word, the, the, the Latin word means book, but in Greek, it means books. So you start right from the beginning with it, it should be plural, but what we made it was singular. So with the Latin, it's singular, and we made it a book rather than it being plural. Now, if anybody understands that you, you only have to look at the thing itself, it has 66 books, in fact, inside it. There's uh, 39 Old Testament books, which was made up of the Hebrew Bible, and 27 that constituted the New Testament. Um, but what happened was it was compiled with a purpose to to introduce something that represented the Christian canon of the newly emerging church. This is back in the third century. So we have the, um, the books of the Old Testament and then the books of the New Testament that come together to make this book. But originally they were books. Do you get it? So here's the thing, it was compiled with a purpose. It was done to fill a need. And if you remember what happened with Constantine, what happened there? Because his empire was crumbling, he decided, let's get together a group of rules that we can all follow that will bring unity to everybody and it will get rid of the heretics and we'll get some stability. And it's the same thing with Bible because what happens is the moment that you bring things together and call it a book, and above all that you call it a closed book then it means that there's no re- revelation every revelation is is finished and from that point on nothing can be added now wouldn't it been far better if what had been said was at this time we feel that this is what can be included but there might be way more to come but but who knows so the other thing i, I think i've maybe messed all this up now but basically what it's become is a book you're doing it all down one side. That's fine. I don't, I don't really mind. As long as it's making sense to you. So basically, it's a closed canon. Now, do you know what canon means? And we were talking about it a few minutes ago. It means measuring stick. So it went from being books that were all sorts of different stories about different things, which, I'll, again, I'll come to in a minute, to suddenly being a measuring stick about one thing. I mean that's interesting in itself isn't it? It represented a single narrative and get this now with one single divine author which we usually refer to as the Holy Spirit being uh, you know involved in it all but it went from lots of different writers to suddenly having one writer and then the other thing that's really funny is that it actually um, becomes not just a book but it then becomes a holy book, can you see the the evolution? Um, So the Bible as we know it now uh, was completed in the third century, uh, putting those things together like we said, and it was called the Latin Vulgate, so understanding then where the Latin comes from, that it became books instead, uh, sorry, book instead of books, sorry if I'm, I'm doing wrong here. So, and then as we, we come to the, the, the more modern era, which is not so modern because it's hundreds of years ago, basically uh, the, the Catholics decided what they were also going to include because they put a whole bunch more books in called the Apocrypha. We don't have the Apocrypha. And this is just information for you. Um, the Protestants excluded the, the Apocrypha, um, and that was 1546 and 1563. Now, what interests me in that as well, if we follow that, that pattern you uh, see that uh, how you can go then to have a Pope who is also one in the context that he is above and even he would be called infallible because that's the same thing that we've done with the book you then do it with a leader so instead of being lots of leaders like they used to be in the early church with lots of different understandings of what Christ meant and, you know, the story, you then get one idea, one narrative, and even in the, like in the Catholic church, you get one boss above it all. So you can see where this this is leading, can't you? Is, Is this making sense? Okay, so then words are introduced like infallible, Who's heard that word? The word of God, the Bible, is infallible. Well, do you know what infallible means? And actually, you know, it, it's nuts when you just look at the, the, um, the uh, dictionary uh, definition. Incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. Unerring, error-free, unfailing, faultless, flawless, impeccable. All of those. Where did that come from? Because you'll see in a minute, when I just get down my page, how it was originally. And we need to ask the question, what were these individual things? What did they mean at that time? What audience was the, were they being spoken to? And rather than now just being pulled together to mean one new thing, they actually had a, a message for all sorts of different things that were going on many years ago, but suddenly they're herded into this one cover. So that's one of the words, infallible, which I have to be honest, I, I can't hold with that at all, because anything that people have had hold of <laughs> is bound to not be infallible, right? Okay, another one that's often used is this, um, inerrant, and I used it before uh, under the definition, um, again, it's incapable of being wrong. Um, which, again, people use that a lot. Now, there's another word that I prefer to use, and you'll have heard this. It's inspired. Um, and that is a lovely thing because you think about it, yes. It's of extraordinary quality as if arising from some external creative impulse. Now, that's more like it, isn't it? Because when people are um, uh Touched by the Holy Spirit, they are going to, something happens. So that makes sense. So we have, in, in, in essence, the truth is it's inspired, but what people have made it is infallible and inerrant. And then you uh, are under no illusions then why there's such fighting goes on, because you have people like the, 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 the Jewish, the Hebrew people who have their Torah, and then you have the, the Muslims who have their Koran. You have the Hindus who have their Mahabharata and the other word that I can't say. And they believe so categorically that theirs is the one and are not willing at all to believe that it potentially could be, have a mistake in it. And so everybody then holds onto their thing and says, you know, mine, mine's right and then you get war. Right? And you can understand then if you go back to the third century when this was happening why all of a sudden things really went pear-shaped because you've got your crusades, you've got all sorts of horrible things that happen. Why? Because when people have something that they believe is infallible or inerrant they are going to fight as though it's that. Does this make sense? I hope it does. Okay. So the question I asked a few minutes ago was, what was the Bible before it was the Bible? And I know I've gone a bit funny way around it, but I'll get there now. It's this, simply independently written texts and traditions that were written over a thousand year period, but suddenly were co-opted by others to be part of one book. And later generations came to know these compilation texts as Bible. Do you remember what we said? Bible Biblia. It was originally a Greek word. It was loaned from the Greek, which meant books, but the Latin made it book. And we can see what happened there. So, this is basically uh, my question well, what, what were the writers' intent at the time of writing? What did these texts mean to those people at that time? What were the historical, political, social circumstances of that time? What were their concerns and beliefs that needed addressing? What were their agendas? Now, I'm saying what were their agendas, we've actually seen that there was an an agenda here. Because in order to bring it together, there was an an agenda because we wanted to bring everybody uh, who professed to be Christian under one common narrative as opposed to many different stories. And that's why there's a lot of books that didn't make it into the 66, and I know I mentioned this a few weeks ago in, in uh, uh, what was Come Life, um, a lot of books that didn't make it. Why? Because what, whatever it was that was being put together back then, it had to follow this single narrative or believe that it was working towards that one goal. So let's see how the journey re-evolved. So it started... With scrolls. Now, most of these scrolls that make up what we call the Bible, they were actually found, like in the uh, uh, under, underneath temple sites or whatever. They were, they were saved during uh, such times of war or whatever. They were rolled up and they were hidden. And the, when things were like um, torn down, they would suddenly come across these these scrolls. So, scrolls, plural. But then, of course, as time went on and there was a bit more, um, uh, what's the word? Um, Modernity? (laughs) Can I use that word? Then it became a a, a more manageable manageable codex, they called it. So basically, it was papyrus and pages where they wrote, instead of long ones. So you can see we're we're getting nearer to to a book, aren't we? Um, And as I said before, it's books. Next thing, many authors... Lots of stories and history, or a word that is used a lot now is, and I can hardly say it, is historiography. Is it historiography? Which is actually more history of history. So it's how, how what was written, how we understand it and why it was written. So for instance, we get really upset when anybody suggests that um, the Bible uh, has things in it that aren't actually historical facts because we say well there must be because we must have to believe it but even if you now look at some of the um research that's taken place and archaeological digs and what they call as extra-biblical evidence, there are some things which people, the, the, the experts will just say, actually, there is no evidence whatsoever to say that, for instance, and this is an example, so please don't say that I'm saying this isn't a fact, I'm just giving you an example, that let's say one million people were in this particular valley, in this particular part of the world for 400 years. Now, I'm only offering that as an example, because if you've got a huge bunch of people in a place, especially desert dwellers, you are going to find some trace of their being there. And this isn't me knocking the Bible, and we'll get to why these stories were told in a little minute. But it's just to help you understand that the Bible isn't necessary, just historical fact. But it is history of history in the context of how people wrote it up and saw it for particular reasons. And I will clarify a bit more of that in, in a little bit. So, I said, we, get the, we go from books to book. Then it suddenly becomes holy. We have one author instead of many authors And we have one single narrative and one rule, which is this canon representing uh, the, the emerging church. So another question, did any of those early writers expect that their story would end up representing this Christian canon or of this emerging church? I would say categorically no, because... The people who wrote it weren't expecting emerging anything because what they were totally into was what they were totally into. Hence why they wrote the story in the first place. That's what they were into. So it's just interesting that you, you um, suddenly find yourself reading these stories that are included in the Bible, not in the context of what they meant then, but how they support the reason why they were put in this? Now, again, I'm not saying that that isn't right, but it is another. It, it's a it, it's a different reason for what they were originally done. So, now, what's very interesting, and we're getting now into a little bit of uh, what's really helped me in my understanding of the Bible. Thank you for helping me. I'm sorry if it's all. Thank you very much um, what we also have to understand is that we compare everything from our modern understanding of things so we don't ever think when somebody in the ancient world wrote something what was that about because we we always look at it from where we are now don't we what's an accepted principle and what you find um, a lot you know as you do research is that Ancient writing was just very different in the sense that they used um, king's names, the, the name of God, in all, or, a, or a hero. So kings, gods, heroes, in order to authorize whatever it was that they thought was the truth. Right? Now, we know that other people do that as well, but this was something that went on all of the time it was an ancient thing that that went on and um, so and there's also the fact that it was a oral tradition that literally was spoken and handed down and handed down and handed down until you were in a position where people could write because for a long time that wasn't the case and again there's another issue that we find uh, interesting that a lot of what we look at as, say, the, uh, you know, the Torah, which is the five, uh, first five books of the Bible, weren't actually penned or written down until much later on. And it's, it's um, about the 7th century when they had just come out. When I say 7th century, I don't mean this side. I mean the other side, B.C., not A.D. Um, and the reason why they could write it down was because they were in a particular setting where the economy of the city or whatever that they were in could actually afford to write it down. So people who were in the, the, the fields and out in the, 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 the deserts didn't have that facility and therefore didn't, didn't write things down very much. Now, there's interesting things as well about, again, this ancient writing, is that they felt nothing about... Revisiting a scroll that had been written here and looking at it and think, nah, that doesn't um, make us sound good as we'd like to sound. So what they would do is rewrite it in a way that made them look better and made somebody else look terrible. Now you think, oh, surely not. That can't be what has gone on in, in this, these texts but remember, you're going back to say what these texts were originally, not what they were then claimed to be here. Right, so for instance, I'll give you an example of that, and and it'll help you, I hope. Right, so there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. They're called the five books of Moses, right? The first four books were written at one point in, in history, and We can always come back to dates and things. I'm just trying to give you a, 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 what do you call it? An overview at the minute. But Deuteronomy, right, was written centuries later and then tagged on the end. And the thing is, Deuteronomy was written by totally different people. But if you read it and you read it carefully, it's still been um, written as though Moses is talking. He's, Moses is saying, I, I this and I that. But it's not Moses because it was written way after Moses had, had died. And would you believe it? This is where it gets really uh, difficult. It actually contradicts some of the stuff that's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. Why? Because when we get up to this place here after the Babylonian uh, um, exile, the way they're writing up what happened then, before, is different because they've learned some stuff. Now, it's a little bit like if we were to say that, okay, we wrote a chapter of our lives from 2003 to 2013, and then when it came to 2016, we looked back at it and thought, oh no, oh no, Don't, I, that's not... So, what we, we would do is write something different, it doesn't mean that what is happening here was wrong, but it means that something has overridden it. And sadly, the reason why I said at the beginning that we need to to, uh, defend the Bible for what it is rather than what it isn't, this is a lot of what goes on in the book, (laughs) which is books, it's what goes on in the book. So if you look at Deuteronomy you will see that that is a totally different book uh, written by different authors, Yes, it was sort of overriding some of the things that went on. And I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about that later, Or maybe I should tell you about it now. You see, because Deuteronomy was written by a bunch of people called the Deuteronomists. Fancy, that's really clever, isn't it? And you see, the Deuteronomists, were absolutely uh, upset with certain things that had happened to Israel. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself, really, and I almost shouldn't say this right now. But there is evidence in the Bible, the books, that actually there was a point where Israel um, wasn't true to the one God. And it was the Deuteronomists who kicked up a stink, and they said, everything that we write is going to be aimed at Israel, who are not really holding to the truth of one God, who are actually serving more than one God, and we want to sort that out. So when you get Deuteronomy, that's what that is doing, and yet it's being tagged on to the end, which actually is a very faithful, for me, I'm thinking, well, that's quite faithful to do that. Instead of getting rid of it, they just tagged it on The end, I think that's quite amazing. So, here we go. Um, let's look at and I've already said one at the sources for writing, sources not black, not brown, not red, not mayo. So, the sources, um, because this is really interesting. So, for instance, maybe you want to write these down. There's what's called the Eloist E E L. O-H-I-S-T. I've already said the Deuteronomist. Brilliant, isn't it? Deuteronomist. Can you spell it? Um, The Yahwist, or just Yahwist, if you want to call it that. Um, And then there is what's called the Priestly Writers. And if you do any research at all, you'll find that you'll be able to find out who was involved in writing what? And it's one of these uh, four groups which are very, very interesting because they don't just stick to writing a book, but they, they dabble. And so in one book, you might have priestly writer, Deuteronomist, Yahweh and Elohim all saying something at the same time in one thing. And how are we expected to figure that out. That's why I love what uh, was it Rob Bell said. He says, you know, the Bible is meant to be heard, not read, because often I believe that what happens is we read it and it doesn't make any sense, and we think, "Heck, what, what's that?" Rather than letting the spirit of it get into our hearts by what we hear, because we can we can always find that within the text. There is something to be gleaned of truth that's got life in it that we can apply, can't we? See see what I mean? You're tired, babe. You look as though you're about to fall asleep. That's all right, as long as I'm not boring you. So, right, if we look at these four, the Elohist, Deuteronomist, Yahwehist, priestly writers, and you then uh, just break down the first five books of the Bible, it's very interesting, right? Because what you have... 18% of it is from an Elohist source. Look at these figures, amazing. 20% Deuteronomist. Uh, 17%... Which was the one I've missed? Oh, Yahwist. There you go. And a whopping 45% the priestly writer. And yet the thing is, the priestly writer wasn't writing anything until many, many centuries further down. But the first five books of the Bible have got more, uh, the priests are more involved in writing that than anybody else. And I would have thought the first uh, five books, with it being a desert experience, you know, the wilderness and all all sorts of things. It's actually way later, and yet the, the priests are involved Oh, I hope this is, uh, I hope this is okay. So let's just take them one by one because, um, and I'm not going to really, um, I'm going to be finished in five minutes, you watch. Um, I don't want to really uh, dabble, sort of get too deep into it because it it, it can be a bit complicated. And I want to keep it simple to sort of just stir your, your imaginations. But see, the Eloist is the, one of the oldest. It's the oldest tradition that finds its way in there. And it's because of a constant word that is used, which is Elohim. Now, where this becomes a problem is because at that point where the, the of the Eloist involvement, they're from the northern kingdom, and they're the ones who are probably more likely to be influenced by other gods and so this Eloist is that they're talking about a deity that's prior in, in Israel's mind to actually Yahweh and Yahweh only gets revealed later on to Moses. So every time you, you're looking at this source of the Elohist, now it's interesting. Think about it. Any of you who have, have done anything in sort of uh, or Bible studies or, or remember some preachers, things like anything that's got L at the end, names. So if you think about the beginning of Scripture and you're talking about like Bethel or even Israel, names had an incredibly... Um, a significant role, because what it did was establish that the God or the, the place where you were. So like Abraham is actually Yahweh because it's got the, 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 the sound of the rah in it. So can you see what I'm trying to say there? So this is where it gets interesting because it proves, and, and honestly, I can get my head around it at times, there was a point where a group of particularly the northern kingdom were actually worshipping a a different God. Now, the interesting thing, Elohim actually means gods. Now, you can then trace where you find that word coming up in in the Bible to actually show you where that influence is. Now, I'll give you you an example, for instance. Um, So, Job... One where it says now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them and, and the Lord said unto Satan whence have you come? Now I'm not getting into the story of Job but this is Eloistic in the context that there were, the Elohim were not just one God it was a group of gods so when you have the uh, whole idea of the assembly of the gods. The El was the chief of them. Yahweh was one of the other gods. And in fact, Satan was another one. Now that's what's called the Eloist source. So as you're going through scripture, you find all of that. You know that that's re- referring to a very ancient time. And that's why Job is one of the oldest books, because it features this Elohist attitude. Now, I, I can give you, you know, um, many examples of that, but I, I um, so for instance, when it talks about the sons of God, it says there, there was a day when the sons of God, we often read sons of God as meaning us, because there's a scripture, isn't there, that says, now are we the sons of God uh, in the New Testament? But in fact, when it's written by an Elohist source, the sons of God actually mean the sons of God up in heaven, which refer to the divine counsel of the Godhead. So it wasn't just, are you with me? And that's why Satan is there, because Satan is actually part of that. Now, I know that can get a bit confusing, but let me just say at this point, the reason why that, that is interesting is because for the Hebrews in general, uh, especially the Yahwehists, Satan or the devil was not a concept at all until very, very late after being in exile again because what they had done is had to try and figure out why have we been in captivity? There must be something we've done wrong. There must be an enemy. And of course, taking from the influences of these other nations who had their good God and their bad God, they suddenly decided that do you see what I mean? So anyway, I hope that's made sense. So even I'll give you another example. In numbers, there is, um, and that's why I say that that these things are scattered all over the place, but you can find them. There's the story about Balaam's ass. Have you ever heard the story of Balaam's ass? Eh? yeah. And basically, um, you know, he's on he's on his donkey. And an angel of the Lord stands before him, which is also interesting because in the Elohist tradition, the angel of the Lord is something different from the angel of the Lord in, a, in another source. But anyway, he says this. He says, how? Oh, I've lost. Yeah, hang on. He says this because he'd been told to go and curse something. And in the end, he says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced. That's the script. You can find it. It's um, uh, Numbers 23, verse 8. Now, if you look at the actual translation of that, it's actually saying, how can I curse those whom El has not cursed and how can I denounce those who Yahweh has not denounced? So in his understanding, where he is, Balaam in his little world, there is actually El and Yahweh happening at the same time. So you've got all these, these things going on. So there's, a, there's a, another scripture which actually points that out. Deuteronomy 32.8, it says, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. Now this is talking about Babel because after the falling of ba- Babel, it, it, they, um, the, uh, the nations were divided. Now it's often interpreted that the nations were divided among the the people of israel on the ground but you know in 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 groups but in fact if you're an eloist it's actually saying that the assembly of the gods actually were given a nation each and that's what this means here when when the most high divided the most high being el the top top one separated the sons of adam at babel he says bounds of the people according to the number of the children of israel now listen to what it said for the Lord's portion, and Lord is Yahweh, is His people. Jacob, Israel, is the lot of His inheritance. So basically, what it's saying there is, this has gone on at Babel. There's this council of the gods according to the Eloists. and basically after Babel, it was all divided, and Yahweh, who was one of the council of the gods, gets Israel for his portion. Now, is, is any of this yeah. making sense? Okay, so so we've got all this, this going on as, as a, 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 an Elohistic thing. Um, just another thing to, to, to point out as well. When the children of Israel built the golden calf, what's interesting, the, the Elohist writers that are, are putting their little spin on it, it's so interesting because the... Northern territory of the the northern kingdom of of Israel, who were the ones who strongly identified with El, right? He was more, he was less human-faced than Yahweh was going to be. I think, is it called anthropomorphic or something, a funny word like that? Yeah, horrible words like that. And so he, his symbol, guess what it was? It was a bull, And so when they go up, they eat, Moses goes up to get the whatever, and they build a a golden calf, we're thinking, that's disgusting, how terrible. But the truth is, in their heads, all they were doing was building what represented what they believed was their God, which was hell. That that makes total sense to me now, and I think, well, bless them. (laughs) You know, yeah, they they went a bit, bit off, but it was what was in their... You know, in their heads, to do so. Anyway, um, okay. Moving on. So I've given I've given you a little bit of that. Does Does that help a bit? If you ain't going to read your Bibles, then it don't really matter, does it? But anyway. um, Okay. So next, we're going to take this one. the 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 Yahweh's. Basically, this group of writers were always um, loyal to Yahweh. And you know that they are because in these writings, the word you're going to see all the time is Yahweh this, Yahweh that, Yahweh the other, right? Because that's just who they'd come to understand. Um, that was the God of Israel's name and it's repeated many times. However, you'll find that it's never repeated before. Um, it's his, the revelation to Moses because this is the... Um, the what do you call it the emphasis the dominant force is that Um, so uh, the Yahwehists were from the southern province of the kingdom and so they wrote mainly to um, basically big up themselves I mean this is what they did Um, they were the ones that were loyal to Yahweh he was Israel's true God and so everything they write in many ways, he's either attacking the Elois view to tell them that they're wrong, or they're just banging a drum. Come on, this—this this is who our God is. But even then, their writings weren't, couldn't have been done um, until this, about seventh century BC, because it was after this exilic—exilic? Do you call it exilic? Period. So we've got the Yahweh. So when you read, if you're reading the Bible and you see Yahweh going on, you know that there's this group of people who are really uh, very, very loyal to Yahweh. Now this one I absolutely love, the priestly source. I just think this is awesome. I know you can't see it, but a big, big portion is is written by them. And um, you can imagine as priests, what is going to be their obsession? And I found this just brilliant. And I needed to hear this because I think to myself, yeah, this is where the church really got hung up. If you think about it, you know, the one, uh, the one single narrative, etc., etc. They got totally hung up with holiness and ritual and rules. Absolutely awesome. And I think to myself, yeah, just so true. Now, what you don't know probably is that there were two rival factions in the priesthood. And... Um, one was called the Aaronids, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron's cronies, and the others were the Levites. And uh, you'll find that Leviticus and Numbers is mostly written by the priests of the Aaronids, and Deuteronomy has got the Levites in. And the sad thing about it is, as you read it, you'd think you would, that as they talk about Yahweh, who is their God? You'd think they were talking about two different gods. Because in their head, in their head, they were. Because how could God call the Aaronids to speak and officiate on their behalf, but also call this other group to officiate and speak on their behalf? And they weren't going to have it. So, and honestly, this is, I, I struggle to say it, but. A lot of the stories that you see written from the priestly viewpoint is is saying things to either undermine the other priesthood. So the stories, for instance, the one where Uzzah touches the cart, for instance, right? I'm not saying he didn't do this, but I'm saying how they're writing it, you see. Because guess who touched, who was it that... It was the other bunch that touched it or was doing something with it. And we are the ones who have been given the right to officiate. They can't do it, so we make absolutely clear that no one other than us can... Are you with me? This is exactly what goes on. And so here's the other thing. Yahweh's foe, his enemy, is not a devil or a demon or whatever. It's unholiness, being impure... Uh, unclean practices, behaviours and basically they are the policemen to make everybody miserable and sometimes you have to ask the question was it necessary or was it the fact that they decided that we are going to make up our mind that the, the major thing about Yahweh is not going to dwell with unclean people if you spread that around your group you're going to get people to do what you're told. It's control, isn't it? So if the thing is, Yahweh will never dwell with unclean people, what's going to happen? Come on, be honest. Just they're just going to shape up, are Now think about that in the context of what, what has become. When I talked about Bible bashing at the beginning... What happens, it's usually to point out uncleanness, it's to, you need to be holy, God will never dwell with you unless, 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 so yeah, that's what they were doing all the time. Um, so even in the story, there's, a, there's another one about, um, oh I can't remember now, I haven't got it written down, we can cover these at another time if you want to. It's really, for me, it's really interesting because what you're seeing is in one chapter written by the Aaronids, they are pointing out by a story that the Levites have no right to be doing anything. And if they touch this, they're going to be killed. Do you you get me? Or anybody, any commoner or whoever. And so that's what's going on all all of the time. So uh, also, another decree of these priests, which is, I think is amazing, is that you read all the time about to cut off. <laughs> to cut off. To cut you off. To cut you off. I mean, for goodness sake, to cut you off. And, you, you know, I, I haven't put um, illustrations there, um, but, but basically that. Keep making and insisting on rules or else they wouldn't any longer have a job, if you think about it. Because we've always said that once we started with the um, ministry of grace and uh, the belief that, you know, you're almost into universalism, the truth is you feel as though you haven't got a job anymore. What, what is there to do? You know, you're obsolete almost. But it's because um, the, these priests kept making rules in order to keep the people right, in order to supposedly... Um, Uh, The the story I was thinking of was when, and I can't remember, oh, I'm sorry. But it was basically, one of the stories in Samuel is when basically God, well, Yahweh, let's call him Yahweh, he gets incredibly mad because one group of people literally looked at the Ark of the Covenant and so he slew 50,000 people, allegedly. Shall we put that on there? That was getting written up to make sure that in everybody's mind, the people knew who were the priests and who could do this and who c- could do that. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at the Deuteronomist now. I hope you're seeing how then, as you look through the Bible. Now, I, again, I, I don't know how many of you read it regularly. It used to be something that we did a, um, often and all the time. It's, you know, I don't know whether you do anymore. But what this actually shows you, how you can be reading one thing here and reading something just another couple of chapters further on and find that the, 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 um, the pattern, the feel has totally changed because you've actually got a different writer interjecting at that, that time. So let's just look at the Deuteronomist. Right, what the Deuteronomist did, now I uh, told you about they wrote Deuteronomy, yes, but they also wrote other books as well. Um, it's not just just that one, which is obvious. Um, but um, what they tried to do in their writing was make sense of the exiles. And uh, every time supposedly the people went into exile and that you know they were in trouble, the Deuteronomists would try to make sense of it and say, do you know what? It's because We have not stayed true to Yahweh. If we'd have stayed true to Yahweh, this wouldn't have happened. If we'd have done this, we'd have been all right. Now, again, as I read this, I think, yeah, isn't that even what we can do in our lives? Because we can be thinking to ourselves, if if only I'd maybe done this better or that better, especially... Not so much now, but in, in the guilt that used to be placed on people when they felt that maybe I should have served God better, I should have prayed more, or I should have done this more, or I should have given more. It, the, the, it comes the point where we have a reason for our exile. So what happens is that basically the, um, the Deuteronomists get on everybody's case in order to bring the whole nation back to monotheism rather than polytheism because they believed that there was this slipping away because of these other gods of other nations uh, around them. Now, where am I? Okay. Um, all the exiles led to much theological reflection of the meaning of the tragedy that had taken place. And so the Deuteronomy mis- history was written as an explanation. Israel had been unfaithful to Yahweh and the exile was God's punishment. So um, let me see, where am I now? Right, so this, as you're reading it, you will see when they talk about tearing down things like Asherah poles or Asherah poles. Now Asherah was supposedly a goddess that was part of the Canaanite uh, group of gods. And um, clearly, if you read through quite a few stories, you even find that you could go into a temple of Yahweh and you'd find that there was an Asherah pole in the temple. And that's when the command came. You have to tear them down. Now, you don't tear down what isn't there, right? So anybody who says... Oh, no, they weren't. No, you've read that wrong. No, there are verses that says literally in the temple next to the altar of the Lord stood an Asherah pole because they somehow thought, oh, well, you know, that's the bit that's the feminine side of God. So we've got the Asherah pole, which is the goddess bit for fertility, and then we've got the altar of God here. Oh, we'll have both, best of both worlds. So the Deuteronomists were going around saying, nah. We're not going to have that. You're going to tear that down and we're going to be true to one God because unless we do that, we're going to always be in exile. So that was what was going on there. Right, so to to try and bring this to a close, which I told you I'd be done quite quick because I I can give you lots of illustrations for it all, but I didn't want to bog you down. Um, The conclusion really is, is that this about being a single narrative and all this is not really what it's about there's so much going on with all these sources and it is a journey from you could say a very ancient understanding of plural gods to understanding Yahweh as God the God of Israel and then these come in here to put down all the rules and regulations which I'm not sure they ever should but that's what happens isn't it and then the Deuteronomists here, banging the drum to say, we can, we've got to be monotheistic. Now, most people wouldn't have even understood that the Israelites went this journey, but they did. And so you get then, what's, what's really wonderful is that you get to the New Testament where you've got uh, Jesus, who is the word made flesh. He never used uh, Yahweh once. And he never used any other names of God at all. We know that where he was developing the whole thing too was not Yahweh, not El, not the pantheon of the gods of any other nations, but was actually bringing people to understand Father, Abba. You see? So you have the development that goes on. So instead of... I mean, there are people who've who've said over the years that the the Old Testament has nothing to do with us at all. And I could possibly say, well, I can see how they could come to that understanding other than to see this incredible journey of God's, of of the Abba of Jesus being revealed to bring us to a place where we have a new high priest, the priestly writer is no longer these, but it's actually the great high priest who said when he had finished doing his job, he sat down, so there's no need for these anymore and um, yeah I think I've covered that have, have, have I covered that so um, I've, I've had something else to say oh right and it, we, it will be nice as well to take some of the Old Testament stories and actually see by just looking at even the names where this source is coming from and what is behind it and what's going on So it gives you just a, an ability to say do you know what I'm not defending this text in order to say it's something that it isn't. I'm actually able to say, I know what it is. This is what it is. And, uh, you know, for me, that's really been incredibly helpful. And I find that I now have far more understanding and far more respect for the book. The book? The book? The books? I should say the book, shouldn't I? Um, And then, you know, in order that we might see the journey, um, now that doesn't mean to say that It's been rejected in any way. It's just like I say, it's understanding for for what it was. And uh, we can look at some more of these at another time. So there you go. Hope that's helped. So you can see how sometimes as well, the emphasis goes on to a person called Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, but actually Israel is more part of this then actually Abraham, who is part of the new covenant that takes us right through to Jesus. So when a lot of people are getting really hung up about Israel and their place and this, that, and the other, potentially they're, they're going down the wrong track, the old, because it's an an, very ancient. So all the names that were changed to like L at the end is the most ancient of, of all the, the understanding. So there you go.
0: Yes, great. Uh, Right, a couple of things. One is we didn't get it done for tonight, but you were supposed to have a little sheet to make notes. Um, The reason I say that is because uh, we are not going to necessarily discuss after each session, because sometimes that can take us off in a direction. We want you to be able to take some notes, have a think, go away, and we will make room to answer questions and revisit what it is that you want us to, to revisit. So, this, this is what Chris has taught today is not the end, okay? And therefore, the end. Uh, this is one step in, in at least a month that we'll talk about this. I want to add, can I just add one or two things on there just, just to help? Okay, what that has shown us is you have something here called an agenda. The Bible was not written without agenda. It was written with agenda. What Chris has really been showing you in detail, whether you caught it in full or not, that all these had an agenda. And um, that's why within the Bible, I've said this to you before, it sounds terrible and I almost feel wrong doing it, but I know it's right, that if we're not careful, God can appear to be a genocidal maniac who goes around murdering villages and killing people to make sure everybody knows he's boss, and that doesn't fit with the spirit of Jesus. So you have to say it's definitely written, but is what's written, first of all, written without agenda? Secondly, does that look like Jesus? And if not, it doesn't make it invalid. It just says, so therefore, what do we learn from this? As in all teaching, is there an agenda? Okay, so that's very important as we begin to, as we continue to unfold this. Now, Another couple of things, there are two Greek words that are used to explain what we know as Bible, that of course when Paul was writing the Bible, he wasn't writing the Bible, he was writing letters, okay, which he had no idea that we would be sat in York nearly 2,000 years later, referring to the letters that he wrote in context, okay, okay. Um, And he deals with, in those letters, agendas. I'm I'm reading Galatians at the moment over and over again. It's not my favorite book, Hebrews is. But Galatians is all about how that early gospel was promoted with an agenda. The agenda being, if it doesn't look like Judaism, it's not the gospel. Paul says, you're wrong. So even in the New Testament, we see agenda, same thing. Is going on. Now that doesn't invalidate the text. He says, What do we therefore learn in the text? Here is a journey that Chris has explained from a polytheistic, many gods, pagan society to find the Father, the Abba of Jesus. And this is all the stuff that's going on in that agenda. Now, here's those two Greek words, okay? Uh, One is the word logos. The other one I'm going to write down here, you might not all be able to see it, is the word hrema. Okay? Both of those are translated into English as a word. But this means a general word to everybody, non specific. It's just the words that are used to say something logos. This means an intimate personal word spoken by someone to someone. So the whole of this thing that we call Bible or Biblia is logos. In the Greek, it's words. But what we are looking for within it is this rhema, which we don't have the ability to do in English. You can only say it in Greek. Now, my other little thought on that is this, okay? So John chapter 1, verse 1, which I believe is the New Testament's version of Genesis, okay? Because they both start with in the beginning. John starts with this, he says, in the beginning was the, I want you to watch this because it ties in with what Chris says, the word. Not the words. In the beginning was the word. And the word... Was with God and the Word was God. Without Him, nothing that has been made was made, and the Word, singular, became flesh and dwelt among us. So here, the Latin, we turned it to book from the Greek books. The reason the Greek was books is because it was logos, it was words. We then made something it shouldn't have been. Now it goes the other way. We go from words to word they went from book plural to book singular we go from words plural to word singular because there is a thread that goes through all of this with all the agendas there is a thread and that thread is the word made flesh and it's who we know as christ The thread of Christ coming through all of it. Old and New Testament writings, all the stories that were interspersed with nonsense. Christ was in there coming through. So the message of Christ remains untouched. But what has happened to the words in the book, that has been touched. But the word, Christ, remains untouched. Untouched. So what we look for is not like Chris said, to try and fight over what it isn't, infallible, inerrant, but to fight over what it is, inspired truth. Now, of course, the other thing is there is that, is that inspired and truth um, is that it says all scripture is inspired. The, the, the literal Greek is, is breathed, God breathed is the literal Greek. Breath, uh, spirit, and gift are all the same in the Greek, right? They have, they have a link together, breath, spirit, gift. Therefore, what we're looking for in this is breath, spirit, gift. God gifting us by his spirit what comes from the breath of God. So life doesn't come from words. Life comes from breath. The breath is in the word made flesh, who is the Christ, the anointed. That means anointed. Anointed with what? The spirit, the spirit, the gift, the breath coming to us so the thread thread runs through. So I just wanted to put that in so that you see, in spite of the agenda, through it all has come the word. And the word is Christ made flesh. You will see as we look, the same process carries on into the New Testament and into New Testament thinking. One of the problems is that here, right, this third century, we have something called the Council of Nicaea. And when they decided what would be the book, as against the books, guess what happened in a very short space of time? We are now arresting, and we are... persecuting is the wrong word. What's the Spanish Inquisition? Torturing. We are arresting and torturing heretics. On what grounds are they heretics? They don't believe what we have now said is the book. So that doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? But all that comes... When we decide to take the canon and make it the book, we start persecuting people and we get heretics and we get everything then running through to all those horrors of Spanish Inquisition and all that stuff that that went on there. So I want you to see that what happened here may have actually caused more harm than it did good. Maybe it was best to leave it as the books... And to let the Spirit speak to different people in different places at different times in their context, revealing to them the Word made flesh. So thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And uh, and uh, we, will, we will carry on. So, if anybody wants to write some stuff on paper, again, make a note of questions. Make a note of thoughts. Throw them back to us, and then we can... We, We can look at those, you know, from all angles and see what we do. Let me just speak a blessing of you. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I bless you with an an unagended blessing untied to the twists and manipulations that we as humans have brought on religion. With the blessings of heaven above and the blessings of earth beneath, of the Word made flesh of the Spirit dwelling in you and on you, revealing Christ who is in it all from the beginning to the ending. Christ runs through it all. And so be revealed in us, Jesus, as we just celebrate the love of the Father in helping us to understand this stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're done.